You're listening to the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. Sex and relationship advice you can use tonight. Hey, hey, Brandon, how you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. How are you? I'm good. I saw that you you had a big day today. I did. Big, big morning. You had your first friend date since, like your first virtual friend date since the onset of COVID. We're like 10 months in and you told me you were going to have coffee with a friend online. And I was like, oh my God, that's so exciting. And uh, I mean, I, I know we, we talk about relationships, but I, I wonder if we should spend some more time talking about friendships. Yeah, I had a great, I mean, just caught up with a friend over coffee. And like you said, it was the first time since this began that I haven't kind of jumped in on your group of friends to uh, have some connection. So there's this friend of mine who we would meet once every week or two, have coffee, catch up, and honestly, just talk and not like surface superficial conversations, but deeper conversations. Like we've shed some tears together. We, when, when my, when our dog passed away, he was one of the few people that I shared the story with. And it was really hard for me. And, and honestly, I hope he doesn't mind me saying this, but we were both like in tears at this coffee shop, which was a little different. So that was a few years ago, dark horse in the Canary district, right? Yeah, it was, Isn't that your meetup place? Yeah, coming up on about two years ago that that happened. And, you know, since then we've shared in other things that have uh, that's, that have been going on in my life and, and things that have been going on in his life. And it doesn't always get deep, but it's nice to have a friend where you can dig a little bit deeper and you can open up because it's not something that I felt like I, I grew up with. I had a lot of friends that we that we really shared, I guess, intimately about, like things about. Yeah, and I bring it up because, uh, you know, I'm super social and you tend to kind of pop in and pop out. And I think sometimes, and correct me if I'm wrong, my friend group fills your social cup, right? Like you kind of just come and hang with with us for a little bit, then you pull a Brandon and leave us. <laughs> but I, I guess during these different times where I'm not, I'm not seeing any of my friends right now, uh, we are with two of my cousins here. That's who we're living with. Actually, they're they're moving out though tomorrow. They're yeah. they're leaving us. But I, I guess what I'm asking is, does it feel good to like actually reach out and have your own social circle? Is is that important to you? I think sometimes you know I have a bunch of friends, so I think you should have a bunch of friends. But those shoulds don't make sense because what I need isn't necessarily what you need, and I don't think it's an uncommon pattern for the more social partner to kind of keep the social calendar of the perhaps less social partner, if that makes sense. Yeah, I do rely on you for social um, connections, like part like during non COVID times, you know, if we were going to a party, uh, oftentimes you organized or you were invited. I mean, I certainly am invited to... Dude, like, you're invited to so many parties and you don't even tell me. I'm like, <laughs> I wanted to go to that party. Yeah, I know. I get, I do get invited to a lot of events, but I often find myself not going. My, my social, I mean, you talked about my cup. I, I find I get a lot of fill from my work, but I do very much enjoy hanging out with your friends. I don't get to say very much when you guys No, because we out. loud, we loud. You guys loud. <laughs> but, but you know what? It's, it's fun to be around them and I feel like that fills my cup. But over the last 10 months, it has been much more limited. So no, I value that 
I valued that relationship very much. And yes, this was my first virtual friend date. So it was nice to grab coffee and, and to catch up. And I'm, I'm also, I've learned, I learned so much from these podcasts. I mean, there are people that we've interviewed and that I've taken a lot out of and that willingness to be vulnerable and that willingness to kind of push the comfort zone when you're, when you're ready with a group of friends who you feel like they'll respond well to it, like Emeka. Emeka Menakaya. If if folks haven't listened to that episode, you can go back and listen because there's so much good stuff in there about vulnerability, uh, specifically for men. And he is the host of the Hustlers Corner podcast. And I know that that, that interview really had an impact on you. Yeah. I thought his willingness to, to open up to his friend group was really, um, commendable. Like I, 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 I thought it was great. I also took a lot. I've taken a lot out of the conversations that we've had with uh, Courtney Brame. And Courtney is the host of Something Positive for Positive People. He does such incredible work. And he's actually going to be on the podcast in the next couple of weeks. So, you know, I bring it up because, I don't know, maybe people need a reminder or permission or, I don't know, just some sort of validation that it's okay to reach out to a friend? Because like, was it weird that you guys haven't gotten together in so long and then you kind of reconnected today? You know, we do connect via text. Okay. Um, so it wasn't as though all of a sudden after 10 months I reached out and said, hey, let's have a vulnerable chat. No, we, we've kept in touch and we, we do... Actually, that's not true. Uh, I'm sorry, I take that back. We did get together for coffee uh, probably about seven months ago back in the in the summertime. Oh, like an and outdoor coffee? An outdoor coffee, okay. yeah. I mean, we were distanced and, you know, he's got some people at high risk in his group. So we had to take extra precautions. But so I guess it was my second mm-hmm. friend date during this. But it was, again, I felt comfortable in his presence to open up. But that took you know, he's got such a nice way about him that, you know, in our initial conversations, I still felt comfortable enough pushing that boundary and having and saying something that felt vulnerable. So anyway, really long way to say it was a great friend date. Well, you know, we've been talking about friendships. My other cousin, Stephen, had asked us the other day, like, who are your friends? (laughs) And I was like, it's you, Stephen. (laughs) Um, I know a lot of people. I don't know that they would all consider me friends. I think I'm, we're, we're all friendly. I mean, my clients in a lot of ways, I know this sounds like the typical, well, they become friends. Well, some of them do. But some of them really do yeah. become good friends. Um, but there's, I a- don't. Any, any client who has a corgi, <laughs> even if I don't see you, I yeah. consider you a friend. Yeah. Grayson. Yeah. Gotta love Ruby. <laughs> um, but I, I don't have a lot of friends and you know what? Thinking back on the my parents relationship I remember that my mom had friends but my dad didn't seem to have a lot of friends and I don't know I don't know the intricacies of their relationship and his friendships but I'm pretty darn sure he didn't have uh, a, a bunch of friends that he would call up on the regular so I bring it up not to make a thing out of it I'm just curious how you feel about that like do you do you want more friends? Like, not that I'm taking applications for your friends or anything Please like that. Please be my friend. No, but do you feel good about, you know, your, I guess I'm asking, sorry, I'm, I'm kind of falling over my words here because I am so social. It's, yeah, it's harder for me to understand not being around so many people. I, I know we have a lot of close relationships with some family members, right? Like a couple of my cousins, 
I feel very lucky to have like just this moment when I'm thinking about the people in my life that I'm closest to. I feel very lucky to have them. Do I want more friends? I'm always happy to have more friends. Always looking to have more people karaoke with us. <laughs> or actually, maybe I take that back. Maybe I just want the microphone. But I, right now, I feel pretty content with my friend circle. But I uh, don't want to discount anybody else who wants to be my friend. <laughs> Look at you. You're so Canadian I and like so I'm, diplomatic. Like You're like, no, nah, I'm good, man. But also, if you want to be my friend, I'm to... not trying to tell you not to apply. And I'm sorry. And I'm sorry. <laughs> and you're sorry. Uh, you know, I'm actually kind of glad that that's what you said, not because I want you to feel that, but because I think it's a good illustration of the fact that we have really different social needs and that's fine. Like you can have one really close friend and I might have four really close, close friends. Honestly, I don't have a lot of really, really close friends, but I have a lot of, I feel really lucky. Like we have people in our lives, like a couple of my cousins, a couple of other family members. Even some of our neighbors. Are, yeah. Who are, who are good friends. Yeah. And I mean, I, when I do think about the, like the three or four people that come to mind mm -hmm. that you've spent a lot of time with during this pandemic and mm -hmm. during the restrictions that we've had, I feel lucky mm -hmm. that you have those people because I've benefited tremendously. And I'll tell you, I feel like when I've needed to have somebody listen, <laughs> I know that's hard to believe with some of your friends, but I feel like they are willing to listen. And that means a lot. We can joke around and we can play around. But when somebody needs to hear me, I feel like I'm heard. Oh, that's really cool. I wish my, my friends were here to hear that because I kind of know who you're talking about. Uh, yeah, I really think that's cool. All right, before we get into the main topic of today's episode, I want to say thank you to letsgetchecked.com at home medical and health and hormone testing for all of your needs from STIs to all the different levels we need in our body. You order online, they send you the kit, you give them a sample, mail it in, and you can check your results securely online and a lot of people are actually using this and if you are using it please go to letsgetchecked.com and use code Dr. Jess to save so that they know you heard about it here. In this episode we're going to be talking about sensitive subject matter so I just want to offer uh, a warning and you know an opportunity to opt out if this isn't perhaps the time for you because we will be discussing physical trauma with a survivor. And so if you're not feeling like this is something you can handle right now or something that's going to feel triggering, of course, you know, you can take a break or save it for another time or just decide that this episode uh, isn't a fit for you and that's perfectly fine. We're going to be speaking about female genital cutting with Farzana Doctor, an award-winning writer, activist, and psychotherapist. In her latest novel, Seven, she writes the story of Sharifa. And Sharifa is a school teacher in New York City. She has a husband, Murtuza, and a seven-year-old daughter. And the family takes a trip to India, which is sort of intended to be a a marriage-saving trip, as I understand it. She's feeling bored in New York, bored in her marriage. And on that trip, she intends to research her great-great-grandfather, who was a wealthy business leader and philanthropist. But she uncovers other pieces of her, her family story that she had never heard before. So 
uh, you know, it was supposed to be a rags to riches story about her great great grandfather, but she also discovers the mystery of his four wives, which has been missing from the family lore, and she excavates so much more. Now, her trip also coincides with a time of unrest within her family community, which is described as insular and conservative religious community. And so there's no escaping its politics. Uh, at the time, there's a group of feminists locally who are speaking out against Katna, which is an age-old ritual that they describe as female genital cutting. And now Sharifa's two favorite cousins are on opposite sides of this debate, and she's sort of looking to be middle ground. But as it heats up, uh, she continues to learn and is forced to take a position on Katna, or female genital cutting, and to provide additional context to Sharifa's story, as well as discuss some of the issues in the book, from female genital cutting to relationships to sexuality to infidelity and religion and healing sexual trauma, is the author Farzana Doctor. Welcome, Farzana. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure. Now, you describe yourself as a survivor and an activist in the END FGM movement. Uh, can you tell us what it means to be a survivor? It just means that I've experienced Kutna, and Kutna is type 1 FGM. Um, there's four different types. Um, and so um, it's quite a big deal, actually, to identify as a survivor. Um, it's very hard to do it. It's such a taboo subject. Um, it, there's such a culture of shame and silence around it. So when people are able to identify as a survivor, it's um, I think it's a very special thing. Yeah. And uh, you know, when we talk, when you talk about Katna or FGM, can you tell us what it entails? I've already offered folks a warning that maybe this isn't for everybody to listen to, but can you tell us what what FGM or FGMC stands for? You've talked about different levels. Can you walk us through that a little bit? Definitely, yeah. So um, FGMC stands for female genital mutilation slash cutting. People use both words to describe it. And it refers to anything that has to do with harming, injuring, or altering the female genitalia um, for non-medical purposes. And I really like that you've asked me to define all of this because the more we normalize this, um, the better it's going to be for changing this practice. So um, it happens across the globe um, in 92 countries. More and more survivors across the world are speaking out, including white Christian women in the US, um, people in um, Russia and Colombia, and of course, across Africa and the Middle East and in India. Um, there are four different kinds, and there's, of course, no standardization because mostly this happens by amateur cutters. Sometimes it happens by medical cutters, too. But again, there's no standardization because everyone's bodies are different. And the circumstances where this happens, it's often under duress. Um, little girls are not told what's going to be happening to their bodies. They often don't know what's happening to their bodies. And so there ends up being, you know, kind of this process of confusion and sometimes struggle. And so that means that sometimes what's supposed to be, and I'm using air quotes, um, a light cut ends up being a much worse cut because of struggle. So um, Kutna, the form that my community practices is supposed to be a cut to the clitoral hood, but sometimes 
the clit gets cut to. Um, and that's what type one is. It's either a cut to the clitoral hood or to the clitoris. Um, sometimes it's called clitorectomy. Um, and then there's type two, which involves all of what I just mentioned, as well as cutting labia. And then there's type three, which is type one plus type two, plus also um, stitching up um, the person so that there's only a small hole that's you know big enough for urination and menstruation. And then there's type four, which is like all other kinds of harm. So it could be pricking, it could be burning, it could be um, right now, they're also talking about labia pulling um, that happens in some communities. But I think as we hear more and more survivors come forward, we're going to probably learn about more forms that will then end up in type four. So those are that's the range. Uh, it's interesting that you you bring up a couple of points that I'd like to touch on. So first of all, white Christian women in the United States, because I do think that, and perhaps it's my, I don't want to speak for everyone, but my own ignorance leads me to believe that this is a cultural or religious practice that is associated offshore, right? And that's probably my Canadian Eurocentric, you know, assuming that this happens in faraway lands, uh, even if those are lands that I visit. So what is the reason, so you've talked about your culture and Katna, why are white Christian women undergoing a form of FGM or FGMC on American or North American soil? Yeah, so um, it's it really has to do with the mythology that um, girls and non-binary kids' bodies need to be um, controlled, right? And sexuality needs to be controlled as though this is some kind of threatening force within us. And so all across the globe, this is the reason why it's done. And then, you know, there might be other kind of factors that have to do with the context. But, um, you know, people can look up um, a case. Um, there's a woman named Renee Bergstrom who has spoken out about it in the U.S. And for her, it was about she was caught masturbating by her mom. The mom didn't know what to do and went to a doctor. And then the doctor performed type 1 FGM on her. And I recently heard from a colleague that Blue Cross was covering forms of FGM into the 70s. Wow, interesting. Now, when we talk about FGM or any cutting, I think we can't ignore Western, more Western practices like labiaplasty. And we actually spoke about labiaplasty not too long ago. And that is for a non-medical reason. It's usually for a cosmetic reason. And I've, I've, I've mentioned the story before, but I'd like to say it again, that oftentimes we don't understand the full anatomy of the clitoris. And I sometimes will do sexuality trainings for physicians. And I will never forget my first sexuality training for OBGYNs because I skipped over the part really quickly about the clitoral anatomy. I remember clicking through the slides and saying, okay, you know the vestibular bulbs, you know the legs, you know the hood, you know the shaft. And, and, then, and they stopped me and said, Jess, go back. Like we have no clue about, we know that these areas are there, but we didn't know that they're either associated with or a part of the clitoris because the clitoris has been reduced to its head alone, right? So oftentimes when we think about the clitoris, we think about this tiny little pea-sized bump rich in nerve endings at the top of where the labia meet, and we treat it like it's a doorbell, even though I'm telling everyone it's not a doorbell, you're not, you don't have to ring it, <laughs> and we forget about its foreskin 
its shaft, its internal erectile tissue. And so that's a long way of getting to a discussion I had with a physician, a cosmetic surgeon, I suppose, who had emailed me and had performed uh, labiaplasty. So he had uh, reduced the size of this patient's lips. And he had also removed some of the hood of the clitoris. Well, she complained. She went back to him and said, I can't have orgasms any, anymore. I'm having trouble. I can't get off. Like I was, I was functioning before. I just didn't like the aesthetics. And he said to me, can you please explain to her that I didn't touch her clitoris? And of course I couldn't because the hood is a part of the clitoris. And so I guess exactly. since, you know, I talk about sex, um, have you had experience or collected insights on how FGM or FGMC affects, I would think, both sexual functioning um, and maybe sexual feelings and exploration and attitudes. Absolutely, yes. And, um, you know, everyone's body is different. And so everybody's experiences are going to be different. So um, a group called SAIO, uh, which works against this practice, as well as a group called We Speak Out, um, did two um, similar kinds of studies to ask survivors about their experiences. And one of the areas that they looked into was sexual functioning, as well as, you know, psychological issues and consequences. And um, about 30% said that they felt that their sex lives had been quite impacted. So only only 30%. And there were things like too much sensitivity, or not enough sensitivity, um, not being able to orgasm. And then there were uh, about 35% who said they didn't know if it had affected them. And I found that to be very interesting, because you know, most people haven't received enough sex ed. Um, they they don't know about um, what their clitoris is for and what their clitoral hood is for and the whole clitoral anatomy and so on, right? So I find it very telling that 35% they said they didn't know. Um, and then, you know, people also talked about things like not being able to trust people. So I think some of the symptoms that people can experience around all of this is very similar to other forms of sexual trauma. Some, some, you know, for example, child abuse, child sexual abuse survivors will say, you know, I'm just fine. I don't have any impact. And others will say I have a lot of impact. So it's the same thing with FGMC survivors. I think that's so important to highlight that range of reactions and really normalize so that you don't feel like, well, what's wrong with me that I experienced trauma in this way and another person, you know, responded to trauma in another way. Now, you have written that you love talking about this very taboo subject and you hope to normalize conversations around it so that one day it may end. And now not every survivor wants to talk about their trauma. So I'm curious how talking and sharing very publicly through your writing, but also through you know, media work, how is talking a part of your survival process? And did you always want to talk about this? Or, you know, are we just catching you at a different moment in in this process? Um, thank you for that question. Um, yeah, I, I think you're catching me at a moment. Um, so for a long time, um, I started being an activist around this in 2015. And at the same time, I was really working through my own trauma around this. I stayed very much out of the spotlight. I did really background work. 
And I would watch my comrades be able to, you know, give media interviews and stand on stages. And I would admire them so much, but I just couldn't do it. And anytime I tried in a small way, I would dissociate, I would sleep badly, I would be a bit wrecked. And at the same time, I was writing this novel about my community in Kutna, and it's my fourth novel. So I knew what the promotion process would be like, and I knew that it would just be so much more powerful if I could follow their examples. And so I did more therapy, I practiced with journalist friends, and I still was dreading it. And then something happened. Um, by the time I did my second interview, I realized that it was feeling good, that the questions that were coming my way were not feeling like intrusions. It felt like this book was this amazing vehicle, an opportunity to be able to do something I'd always wanted to do. And I, I really think that the more we talk about it, the harder it is for this practice to continue because silence is the real villain here. It's not, uh, I mean, it's bad that cutters continue doing it. It's bad that it pra the practice keeps happening, but I think it's the silence that is the vehicle to keep it going. And so talking about it has been a part of your process of managing or working through trauma. What about writing? What led you to write Seven? So Seven came, I think, from my activism. But, you know, writing novels is also this uh, magical, mysterious process. Maybe all writing is. So um, I found myself sitting down with my coffee and these fully formed fictional scenes were just kind of oozing out. And I know by now to just let that happen. And by the time I had about 20 of those scenes, I was like, oh, God, I have a novel. And you just have to follow that. There's no other choice. <laughs> and maybe maybe we'd consider some of these approaches less traditional. When we think about survivors of all types of trauma, you know, speaking publicly writing publicly, like this isn't really journaling, this is something public. And then activism, we may not think of those three roots, but I think it is a reminder that yes. working through trauma is so individualized. Yes. And um, I don't think that everybody should be public. And I don't think everybody should, um, you know, be be and be pressured to do that. Often there is a pressure to do that because you might be involved in some kind of activism and maybe there's not another survivor who can speak to that media person. And so you get pushed maybe prematurely into it and then you end up kind of bleeding on stage or bleeding on the page. And it's it's not it's not a good thing. So each person has to really decide if this is the healthiest thing for them. Would you mind sharing a little bit more about your process of healing anything else we've missed here besides activism and writing and you mentioned therapy yeah so i'm a i'm a psychotherapist myself who works with trauma survivors so i knew as i was having various symptoms come up for example i was having a lot of nightmares um, i was having a lot of freeze responses during sex um, i was crying during sex for the first time in my life when all of this was coming up so i knew that it was time to go to therapy <laughs> and I and I also did some work to educate my therapist about Kutna because I knew that most therapists haven't been trained in this most doctors haven't been trained in this either so um, I, I found someone I really liked sent her lots of information and websites and she was wonderful and so we started with mindfulness work around sex and learning how to own the body again and slow things down 
I also did some work um, with a somatic experiencing therapist, which, which was really beautiful because, you know, trauma um, stays in the body until um, it can be released. And I'm also an, a, a therapist who enjoys um, IFS or internal family systems therapy. So um, I did some of that work as well with the therapist and with myself. Um, and that's been that's been really great. So those were some of the modalities that I went for. Would you mind speaking about somatic therapy? I think that'd be new to many of us. Mm -hmm. So somatic therapy is a way of um, really kind of um, focusing the body in the therapy. So um, there's this idea that we have these kinds of frozen responses to trauma. So um, there's a really great comic that um, an organization um, called NICBM, I think they're called, um, have created where they, they have this uh, picture of a guy who is in a car accident and he, his, his fingers are just curled around uh, the steering wheel and his eyes are bugging out and his face is rigid, like, uh, um, you know, how you would imagine someone would be. And then, you know, you next see him in another situation at a grocery store and he's got the same expression on his face and his hands are you know, clasped around the buggy. And then he, there's another picture where he's at a barbecue and again, same posture, same face. And so there's this idea that our frozen responses to trauma um, stay within our body. So if um, in this case of Kutna, um, the frozen res response would be um, the terror. It would be not being able to push somebody off of you. It would be not being able to say, no, get away from me. So these things get stuck. And so what can happen is you can be in a sexual experience with a wonderful partner and you find yourself frozen and wanting to say, get off of me, but you can't. So that's just an example. So you work with uh, those frozen responses to, um, you know, do the push away, to, to do the words, to to kind of free that stuff from your body. And the somatic therapist is a part of that process, right? So it is hands-on work therapy. And I know that, like, I mean, we know that in traditional therapeutic fields in the West, um, you know, if we think about the APA, the American Psychological Association, and so many governing bodies, they are afraid to touch anything that has to do with touch, which is leaving out such an important sense, right? When we think about our five senses, could you imagine doing therapy without speaking or hearing, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm, All of mm -hmm. these different pieces. Um, so I'm, I'm happy to hear about that. And in terms of somatic therapy, if people are interested in learning more, would you have any recommendations on where they might seek additional resources? They can just uh, Google somatic experiencing therapy. And uh, by the way, uh, mine didn't involve any touch because I was working with somebody over Zoom. Okay. And so a lot of it was um, she was helping me sense into my body and noticing what was going on. And then, you know, prompting me because she had a sense she was watching me. Um, so, so you actually don't have to be touched if you don't want to be. Um, and, you know, in the age of this pandemic, <laughs> so much of our therapy is online. That's great to hear. And I, I do think it's, of course, we'd rather not be in the pandemic. But learning that we can do these things virtually is, I think, really meaningful. And it makes it more accessible to so many more people. Now, if we can go back to your book, in the reviews of Seven, 
I noticed that readers continuously noted that you address Katna or FGMC from multiple perspectives to help us to understand its cultural and religious significance. Uh, you know, can you provide some more context as to why some of your characters, so the cousins, for example, including women, would value and support this practice? Because, you know, condemning a practice without context and understanding probably isn't going to be that effective. It can be very, you know, imperialistic, very colonial. So can you give us some context, uh, either in your own experience or through the lens of your characters, as to why people value Katna? Yes, and I really wanted to write a book that was nuanced because I wanted to get into all of that. As an activist, I can write a tweet that says, you know, FGM is child abuse, but does that, will that change the minds and hearts of people who think that this is a normal thing to do? No, it won't, right? So um, what I like to say is that if there's any culture behind FGM, it's the culture of patriarchy, which is a global phenomenon. So um, how it happens specifically though in our community is um, it's the Dawoodi Bora community. And this is a community where we have an apex leader, a little bit like how Catholics have the Pope. And in our case, uh, we have really been taught never to question um, him. And so anything he says must be done. So it can feel very sacrilegious. And I'm not a religious person and I grew up in a home that was quite liberal. And yet, even I felt a little bit of this sort of discomfort or restriction around challenging uh, what he has to say. It's just, that's if that's a real uh, cultural phenomenon. So people don't question, and they believe that he is really a benevolent figure. So if he's saying something is good, then it must be good. And if you're told, you know, over every, you know, many, many generations that this is something that actually makes girls good, and marriageable um, and acceptable, then you believe it. And this is this is carried out by the women. You know, um, the women are often, as you know, Mona El Tahawi likes to say, the women are the foot soldiers of the patriarchy. So they are the ones who enforce the practice. But they're also um, they're also the ones who have experienced the trauma themselves. And we know that trauma um, gets suppressed, you know, trauma silences us. And so, you know, they might have all kinds of feelings about it, but they're not allowing themselves to feel it. And they might have dissociated it completely as well. So until you break the silence and say, hey, this can be really harmful, it is harmful. It's, you know, a violation of a child's body until people have that information and can really think about it and then challenge what they've learned, it can't stop. And so I've tried to uh, have characters in the book that really believe in it and have to have conversations um, with my protagonist who is you know, fumbling her way through to understand it all um, and who's questioning them. Now, when we look at this from the outside, so, you know, I know our listeners are across the world, but many in North America and Western Europe. How do we address, I think, racist interpretations that create an us versus them, right? They do wrong. They are patriarchal. In fact, the whole world is patriarchal. Or even notions of white saviorism, where perhaps you want to support the movement, but do it in a way that centers the voices of those who really have the understanding and experience. How do we begin with that? 
Yes. And I think it's about, you know, learning how to be a good ally or being in solidarity. So um, look for the organizations that are survivor led, that are feminist and amplify their messages, donate to them. In Canada, we have the End FGMC Network. In the US, there's the US End FGMC Network. In Europe, there's um, a similar one that I think is called the EU FGMC and Ending FGMC something network. Um, so everywhere you go, there are these networks, there are these organizations. And so you look out for them. And I think just understanding that patriarchy is global and perhaps um, FGMC is not that different from rape culture. It's not that different from sexual harassment. It's not that different from, you know, all of the mythology we learn about, you know, virgin and whore, right? So it's, it's all the same bucket of garbage. So <laughs> if we kind of say, here's just another form of that garbage, um, then it's not over there, it's everywhere. And it's us too. Absolutely. And do you run into conversations around comparing FGMC to circumcision of the penis? Yes, all the time. And people have a lot of questions about this, particularly because sometimes that's the language that's used. Um, female circumcision is sometimes used in lieu of FGMC. So um, I think what we need to talk about here is that both the similarities between both is that it's a violation of the, um, you know, child's body. It's um, an issue of lack of consent, right? Um, but there is a difference because the anatomy is different. Um, so removing the foreskin of um, a penis versus the foreskin of a clitoris is gonna look and feel very, very different right, because of how different the genitalia are. Um, you know, the when, when you think about the clitoral hood, it's just such a thin membrane. And it's tiny. Right? It's tiny on a seven-year-old. And that seven, seven is the age, plus or minus a few years, that it happens in our community. I imagine um, even what you just said could be upsetting to people. Um, you know, when we think about circumcision, as non-consensual. I don't know if you want to say anything about that, Brandon. I mean, I've never really thought about it from that perspective, to be quite honest. Um, I didn't have a choice in the matter. Maybe I'm disclosing something now that I never have before. Yeah, you've never talked it, about I've, being I've, circumcised I've, I've never podcast. talked about it. Uh, it's not something until this exact moment that I ever thought about. I'm not, I'm not disappointed. I'm not, I don't, I haven't really, to be quite frank, I haven't ever thought about it. And now this conversation that we've had and, and listening to you is going to make me reflect on it, which is something I really appreciate about every guest that comes on is, is an opportunity to think and reflect and think and dig a little bit deeper into um, my own experience. So it's not that I don't want to add to this conversation. I just feel that, you know, Farzana, everything that you've said is just so interesting to me that I, I want to absorb, I want to listen, I want to hear, I want to, I want to learn more. So yeah, from my own experience, I don't really know what else to say other than I feel like I have a bit more reading and thinking to do. Well, that aligns even with what you were talking about earlier, Farzana, with regard to data. People don't know necessarily if it's affected them. And I'm not suggesting that, you know, being circumcised as a child for you is the same as 
you know, somebody else's what what somebody else experienced as trauma at the age of seven. Uh, I'm not saying I'm definitely not saying that your circumcision was traumatic. I don't think you've ever experienced it that way or feel that way, and probably I would agree. never will. I would agree that it's not something that to me ever crossed my mind as being traumatic. But we did talk about when we used to talk about having kids, <laughs> yeah. um, which we don't anymore. <laughs> but we talked about circumcision because, and I don't know if you mind me sharing this, but I meant, I remember many years ago, you were saying, well, yeah, I'd want my kids circumcised because I'm circumcised. And I remember saying, well, hmm, well, I, I don't feel the same way, but let's table it because we're not even really having a kid anyway. <laughs> but I do feel differently now. You I mentioned think, that if, even more recently. Yeah. E- recently in having these conversations, I, 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 f- I feel like it's an opportunity to learn. I feel like it's an opportunity for me on this particular topic, topic if we were to have um, y- you know a son and have the discussion about circumcising them, I think it would warrant a lot more research on my part before I made a unilateral decision without thinking about all or a a number of different perspectives, like a number of different angles. Like, you know, the, the number one, what are my own existing thoughts? Like why? And your biases. Like why why do you want your kid's penis to look like your penis so bad? Exactly. And, you know, thinking about some of these other, like the social pressures, the cultural pressures, um, the aesthetic element, does that matter? This, the, the, the pleasure component, like all of these elements that could be affected by this decision that I'm taking on myself. And, and again, going back to what are my own, why? Why, why am I doing this? And what, what, is the, yeah. what is the purpose? What is the outcome? So that's an example of the nuance in the conversation, right? I think that male circumcision, um, except for in cases where um, it's deemed to be a religious uh, requirement, it's, it's really like a social norm, right? That is um, unexamined. And I think that that's what happens in the vast majority of cases with FGMC as well, until it's examined. It's just this normal thing, even though it sounds terrible and traumatic, and it is. Now, your your main character, Sharifa, who feels torn between her two cousins, as I understand it in the beginning, she wants to kind of find middle ground, but is forced to reckon with a specific truth and, and take a position in the end. Uh, how important was it for your character to, I don't know if I can say come full circle, but you know, take a stand that perhaps, you know, reflects your perspective or your experience. Yes. And I, I knew that I was going to take her there. I wanted her to start though, from a place that was quite clueless because, um, I wanted to be able to present the information in these digestible chunks for the reader. Um, so that's, that's why she's kind of confused and bumbling along. But I did know that I needed to take her to the human rights um, end of the argument in the end, because, you know, I think that um, novelists and artists of all kinds have the ability to, you know, change the status quo and to present possibilities through, you know, imagination. Right. So... and that's what I you're doing. Reinforce an, uh, you know, pro FGM ar- argument, right? Of course, and I really appreciate the way you're doing this with creativity, um, activism through authorship, which I, I can't fathom because I, I've written books, but I, I can't even fathom what it's like to write a fiction 
book, but also a book that brings in these political and important pieces around characters, around sexuality, around religion, around cultural differences and sensitivities. So really thankful for your writing. Uh, Folks can check out Seven by Farzana Doctor, available wherever books are sold. Really appreciate your time today sharing your own story as well as a little bit more about your character. Oh, thank you so much, both of you, Jess and Brandon, for having me on your show. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And thank you for listening. Before you go, if you're interested in Farzana's book, I do have a discount code for you, 25% off using the code DOCTOR, her full last name, DOCTOR25. So DOCTOR25 to save if you're interested in learning more and reading seven. And there's a reason reason it's a best-selling book. So do go check it out. Thanks again for joining us wherever you're at. Have a great week. You're listening to the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. Improve your sex life. Improve your life. Improve your life.